From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Patricia Murphy. This week, a long-sought measure to define anti-Semitic acts as hate crimes passed the Georgia General Assembly and was signed into law by Governor Brian Kemp. Because there is no place for hate in this great state. Today, we'll talk to the lead sponsor of that measure, Representative Esther Panik. I'm Greg Bluestein. Joe Kovac, our new colleague in Macon, was in the room when President Biden called to express his condolences to the parents of Kennedy Sanders, one of the three Georgia Army Reservists killed in Jordan. It was an emotional conversation, and Joe's video of the interaction has gone viral. He joins us later today. I'm Bill Nygut. South Carolina Democrats vote in the Palmetto State's presidential primary election tomorrow. What might we learn about President Biden's strength among his key voters? We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet... You can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Welcome to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia, setting the stakes and the agenda for Georgia politics every weekday morning on WABE. I'm Patricia Murphy, here with Greg Bluestein, Bill Nygut, and Tia Mitchell, who is on the road joining us today. And Tia, we were on your turf in Washington earlier this week for a Politically Georgia Roadshow. You guys came to me. We had a great time. We went to the congressional dinner, hung out with some members of our delegation, and then we had our AJC event. Other members of the delegation came to that. So I appreciate you guys, the one making the trip to Atlanta, but this time you guys made the trip to D.C. I didn't realize, first of all, what a big deal that uh, uh, Washington Press Club uh, congressional dinner is. That was a huge event. Chuck Schumer Mm -hmm. uh, spoke. Uh, That was uh, wonderful to, to see. And Tia, I had no idea. What a star you are in that organization. And I'll add the crowd control. There is, it was really loud. Uh, the, there was only two speakers that really commanded the audience. One was Chuck Schumer, who used his teacher voice, and the other was Tia Mitchell, who yep. got the entire crowd to quiet down <laughs> as she gave her speech. Tia Mitchell was part uh, animal wrangler, part stand-up comedian, um, and then also gave wonderful awards to regional journalists, just like uh, the work that she's doing, they're doing. And it was a terrific event. What I also loved was at the AJC table, we had Senator Raphael Warnock, who's a Democrat, and um, Congressman Buddy Carter, who is a Republican, as well as Democratic Representative Hank Johnson. Yep. So it and was Mitch one of those. Was there too. Yes, he was there as well. He was there as well. So it was one of those bipartisan evenings that you hear don't exist anymore in Washington. And they actually kind of sometimes do. So I thought that was wonderful. And the uh, breakfast the next was, morning. Oh, go ahead, Tia. I was just going to say Rich McCormick dinner was the same day that Rich McCormick, he was in trouble for his swinging on the Capitol Dome incident. Interesting to see him being the talk of the town and kind of explaining his side of the story. Of course, <laughs> Georgia's delegation, never a dull moment. But what were you saying, Bill? Oh, I, well, first of all, Rich McCormick, Greg, you and I were talking to Rich McCormick at one point at the reception. He was bragging about it. He thought it was funny. He thought it was wonderful. But for those of us who have been up to the top of the dome that is a scary, scary height to be pulling a stunt like pull-ups at. Yeah, I haven't been up there myself, but I can only imagine. But we've also seen his videos of him doing push-ups in the snow in Iowa and all sorts of other crazy antics. Yes, well, uh, once a Marine, always Marine, and he's done things that are much more dangerous than that, so I'm sure that's what he would let us know. Um, Well, listen, let's move from the Washington Capitol to the state Capitol, where this week, backers of a long-sought bill to add anti-Semitic acts to the state's hate crimes statute finally got that bill across the finish line. Our Jewish citizens have experienced hate in the form of anti-Semitic flyers spread across neighborhoods. Messages on social media calling for the death of Jews in Israel and around the world, and even hateful gatherings outside synagogues. 
So we are all thankful for the pers perseverance and dedication shown in getting this bill across the finish line as we work together to send a clear message and a unifying message. In Georgia, we stand with our Jewish brothers and sisters today and every day. And with that, now I'll sign HB 30 into law. Joining us now is the state representative who pushed that bill and the lead author on it, Representative Esther Panich, who spent two years trying to get it done. And she was standing with Governor Kemp as he signed it into law. Uh, Representative Panich, congratulations, first of all, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. It has been a great week. And if I could just clarify one thing, I was not the lead author. John Carson, Representative John Carson was. He handled this bill even a year before I got to the legislature. So I'm a co-sponsor, but I definitely want John to get the credit of being the lead sponsor. Of course. Thank you so much for that. And he is, of course, a Republican. So this was a um, bipartisan effort. And it something like this really can't happen without both parties working together, I don't think. Um, so thanks for that clarification. We also want to maybe have Representative Carson on as well to come on and talk about it. Um, but Representative Panich, tell us a little bit about the journey to get this bill passed, because um, it did not pass last year, but it did get across the finish line this year. Yes. So I have learned, this is my first term, so I'm learning as I go. And uh, what I learn is nothing is easy in the Capitol and nothing is designed to be easy in the Capitol. It's a deliberative process. So you need feedback and you need the buy in from from both parties, especially since I'm in the minority party. I wouldn't have the numbers assuming every Democrat voted yes. So I needed we all needed each other. And uh, it it's a real testament to what can be done if people put their minds to it. And and put Georgians first. So I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity to work with the Republicans that supported this. And I look forward to handling other issues. People don't realize that most issues, most solutions for most issues in Georgia are bipartisan. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, not everything is there are a couple that we each take our sides and we fight and we get metaphorically bloodied and bruised. Uh, but we need to work together. So we need to find a way to work together. Uh, for, and we do most of the time. Representative Panich, on that note, you know, you're the only Jewish member of the General Assembly in Georgia. Um, you needed Republican help. But something you also told me, the Jewish community couldn't do this alone. You also needed help from the Christian community, the non-Jewish community, others who, who backed this bill. So tell, tell me about how you helped rally that support. So what we saw last year was that there were some fringe groups that were at the Capitol every day. They talked to legislators, uh, people in the legislature, since I am the only Jewish member, couldn't discern between who was fringe and who was mainstream. And so John and I regrouped once we got the feedback from our colleagues and John really worked on getting his the Christian community, along with some other representatives like Brent Cox, uh, worked on outreach. And I worked on outreach to my own community that we needed to mobilize. We needed to be at the Capitol. We needed to talk to our legislators and participate in every step of the democratic process. And on the Jewish side, uh, Dove Wilker from the American Jewish Committee really took lead to coordinate the, the community to make sure that they were, you know, everybody was in place when we needed them in place. So this was an all hands on deck. And in the Jewish community, I won't speak for the Christian community, although I'm I'm grateful for the leadership that they have shown. In the Jewish community, I have seen no other issue with the community being as united behind HB 30 as as they have been with HB 30. Reform, conservative, Orthodox Jews, all there, all supporting this bill. Uh, Republican and Democratic Jews, all supporting this bill, aside from the tiny fringe. So once we could show my colleagues that the fringe was the fringe and that over 95% of the Jewish community in Georgia supported this bill, it made things a lot easier for them. Additionally, we saw what happened on October 7th. So it was we could, they now could see what Jews had been dealing with for years with the rise of anti-Semitism. And now they could see that a lot of anti-Semitism was um, covered in a pretext 
of anti-Israel hatred. Um, Representative Panich, um, you talk about the Christian community getting involved with this, which helped push it across the line. But what I think is even more notable about some of the Christian community is these were some of the some of the most conservative uh, members of that community, either politically or as uh, as uh, faith leaders, wrote a letter uh, supporting this bill. Among them, John Hagee, whose ministries are uh, popular across the United States, but a very very conservative voice in uh, Christian uh, churches. And Ralph Reed, uh, the uh, uh, who Faith and Freedom Foundation leader. Um, so I think it's really a particularly interesting. You got that help from what many people consider the far right of the Christian uh, community. Yes. Well, sometimes we can all agree on things, and this is one of them. And sometimes there are things that transcend politics. And for the Jewish community, this is one of them. So, and the governor recognized it. Senator Kennedy recognized it. Lieutenant Governor Jones recognized it. And the leadership of my house, Speaker Burns and leader of Stration, um, along with Chairman Billy Mitchell, they all saw it from the beginning. So it was... You know, I'm glad that we could all come together to do this. Tia, let me bring you into the conversation. Hi, Representative Panich. And I wanted to ask you, you know, as we've been talking about the bill and leading towards passage, it was overwhelmingly bipartisan in those votes. But we do know there was some concern, even among Democrats who might have voted yes, but raised concerns about, how the law might be applied and be used against people who did have legitimate legitimate criticisms of Israel. Also some concerns about um, if the state should also address other nations like Islamophobia. I wanted to ask, how did you respond to the concerns raised by your fellow Democrats? What have you assured them or what is your plan, if any, to address them now that this is law? So I want to take up the last one about colleagues who talked about Islamophobia. I would definitely sign a bill that defined Islamophobia. There are four Muslims in the legislature. Not one of them asked for a definition of Islamophobia. It would be the height of arrogance for me as a Jew to define Islamophobia for them. And so I don't know why. This was paired together. You don't vote no on a good bill just because it's not as inclusive as you like it to be. And I would say that the people who said that could have introduced their own bill. There is nothing preventing them from doing it. Instead, they wanted to punish the Jewish community. And many of these people are the same people who say, oh, anti-Semitism is terrible. But they have done nothing, nothing over the last two and a half years to remedy it. Not one thing. So to them, you know, I will do my best to continue to work with people who want to engage. But some of these arguments were just beyond the pale. And I would say the people who didn't vote, not exactly a profile in courage. Representative, tell us a little bit about the practical effects of this bill. For our audience who has not been following the debate closely, what does this mean in um, in real terms for how it could and might protect the Jewish community going forward? So now that there's a definition, people know that they can still be as anti-Semitic as they want. They just can't act on it and expect not to be held accountable. So you can still protest You can still say all the most vile things about Israel and Jews, and you will not be censored by the government. But if you take that next step, you harm somebody, you deface property. If your motivation was anti-Semitic, you will be held accountable under this statute, which is now law. It went into law immediately upon signature. So people should know that they will not be able to get away with harming Jews under a pretext of other things, including their hatred of Israel. So State Representative Esther Panich, who is sponsor, one of the sponsors of, the, uh, of, the, of this new bill designed to combat anti-Semitism, this new law, I should say, you mentioned earlier um, some, of the, some of the opposition. Look, this got overwhelming bipartisan support, but there was a handful of no votes and a handful of, of, of folks who, who, what we say in politics, took a walk, did not vote at all. 
um, you said they were not exactly a profile encouraged. I want you to expand on that because uh, this is this is really um, divisive internal politics for Democrats because most of those those no votes or those who took a walk were Democrats, including some of your your dear colleagues. I'm thinking about State Senator uh, Sally Harrell, who represents a, a big chunk of, of of a heavily Jewish population in the North Atlanta suburbs. Um, what, what have you had a conversation with her since this? I have not. Um, I had conversations with her prior to this where I believe that she would be voting yes. I also know constituents who say that they've spoke to her prior to the vote and she said she would be voting yes. So I don't know where this is coming from. I'm deeply disappointed with her remarks. Again, she was one of those who said there should be also a bill on Islamophobia. And I immediately texted her and said I would have done I would have signed it had one been given to me or even asked for. So I'm not sure. I'm not in Sally's district, obviously, and uh, but I'm really disappointed. And I think she owes an explanation to the Jewish community. Uh, Representative Panish, that is something that you've told us that's really worth following up on, uh, certainly by um, uh, perhaps us as journalists. But in the meantime, I have a different question I'd like to ask you. Um, Make sure that our listeners understand what it means that anti-Semitism now will have a much more formal place in the hate crimes law that Georgia already established. Make sure they understand that this becomes a sentencing enhancement, not a primary uh, criminal offense. Could you explain that a little bit more, please? Correct. It is not a crime to be anti-Semitic. The government will not arrest you for being or, you know, obviously should not arrest you for being anti-Semitic. I'm a criminal defense lawyer. I know sometimes the government does things that they shouldn't, but nobody would have license to be arrested for their views or for their speech. It's their action against a Jewish person, um, even a non-Jewish person who's acting in that kind of capacity or property that. You can't then say, well, it wasn't their religion I didn't like. It was their politics. There's just no excuse for violence. There's no excuse for vandalism in the name of whatever political belief you have um, without being held accountable as to why. So this bill, while religion was covered in the original hate crimes law and the ADL and AJC helped put that together, the ADL primarily. And we should note the other AJC, not the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Correct. (laughs) Oh, you're going to get a lot of mail now. But yes, um, it's the American Jewish Community uh, Committee. But it was, um, I forgot where I was going, you guys. Just Just that you were talking about the support that this this bill and how it came to to be about. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, with the hate crimes law. That it's, it was a monumental lift. And- it, it took a, probably too long, and it only came about because of Ahmad Arbery's horrific murder because he was black. Jews just needed the same level of protection. We were not protected enough by merely saying religion because Jews are more than a religion. We're, we're a people, we're a nation, we're an ethnicity. Those things are not covered or were not covered under the current hate crime statute. But yes, this is a sentencing enhancement. Once somebody is charged with a underlying crime like um, assault or defacing property, then it's up to the prosecutor using this definition as a guide to determine whether or not they can carry their burden of saying, giving a notice to the defendant saying, I intend to enhance your sentence because of the, the bias that you held, which is a violation of the hate crimes law. All right. Well, Representative Panage, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll continue to watch your moves through the legislature, but you've certainly got a big bill passed um, across the finish line this week. And we will ask you to come back as the session continues. I look forward to it. Thank you. All right. Of course. Uh, Now we're going to bring Tia in one more time. Uh, Tia, we know you're on the way to Dover Air Force Base in Delaware, where there is a dignified transfer ceremony planned for the three Georgia reservists who were killed in Jordan on Sunday. Tell us a little bit about um, what you're going to be doing there and what you expect to, to be seeing. Yes. So the dignified transfer is going to happen, like you mentioned, at Dover Air Space in Delaware. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden will be there. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, both Georgia Senators Ossoff and Warnock, um, Representative Buddy Carter, who 
Um, two of the three reservists lived in his district. They all planned to be there for this very solemn event where, again, the um, the the not a casket, but there's like a quite frankly, where the remains of these uh, soldiers, these army reservists are going to be the U.S. because because they were killed in Jordan. So they're coming to the U.S. and they're going to transfer the remains to the care of their families. So the families of all three reservists will be there to kind of make the transfer from military control to family control. And so this is that process. Again, it'll be a very solemn, serious event. President Biden is also going to meet privately before the dignified transfer, so I won't be there to see that. But again, we know that President Biden has already spoken to them by phone, words of comfort, and so now he'll be able to do that in person. All right. Well, T, we will um, follow your coverage later today, and we look forward to hearing about it from you next, uh, next week on the show. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Ocean breeze, tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC's politics team. Just go to AJC.com slash newsletters and sign up today. AJC.com slash newsletters. Well, we got terrible news on Sunday that three Georgia reservists, Specialist Brianna Moffat of Savannah, Sergeant William Rivers of Carrollton, and Specialist Kennedy Sanders from Waycross were all killed in a drone attack while deployed in Jordan. Sanders and Moffat were promoted to sergeant posthumously. All three of their remains, of course, will be returned at a ceremony in Dover Air Force Base in Delaware later today. Their families, President Biden, both of Georgia's two U.S. senators, Representative Buddy Carter and others will be on hand to pay their respects. And right now we want to bring in our colleague, Joe Kovac, our new Macon Bureau chief, who was in Waycross when President Biden called Kennedy Center's family. Uh, Joe was there for the call. He spoke with the family. He did some really incredible and emotional reporting that day. And Joe, thank you so much for being with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Can you hear me okay? Yes, we can hear you. Great. And it's great to have you on the show. I'm sorry it's on such a solemn occasion, but I really want to tell our audience how incredibly deep and meaningful your reporting was on that day. And um, tell us a little bit about how you got the news and how you ended up in their living room when this was happening. Yeah, well, as as you guys know, so many times, so many times, uh, good reporting is reliant on sheer luck. Um, it's uh, and and it's uh, just to say that we were, you know, we put the wheels in motion to send a reporter. It, it turned out to be me, um, and it just so happened that morning when I showed up at uh, the Sanders family's home. Uh, her father came outside and, and told me, uh, you know, surprised me really, but said it, it's therapy for me and my wife mm. to have the opportunity to talk about her. And uh, I waited there for a little while and uh, was waved in. And uh, I was told that the president would be calling shortly. Um, so it was just, again, a matter of uh, just being there. So sometimes in the reporting world uh that's the really the key to any decent journalism is to go there um and uh people smarter than i uh sent me there hey joe that's such an important point because one of the hardest things in journalism i've had to do it you've had to do it patricia and bill have had to do it is to talk to a grieving family right. shortly after something like this but as the family said it's also you know for a journalist it's also honor and privilege because we get them to it help is. them tell that story yeah, that's exactly right. And that that's what made me maybe the most nervous of all was, was after leaving, uh, was to, to not uh, mess this up, uh, this moment for them. And uh, they were so kind to extend the opportunity. Uh, and 
yeah, you, you take extra care with every store you do, but certainly uh, something like this, you you want to get it uh, get it right. Joe, you were also there for the phone call when President Biden let Kennedy's family know that she would be posthumously promoted to sergeant. I'm going to play that sound, and then we're going to have you tell us about that afterward. We're promoting her posthumously to sergeant. Oh, wow. That is the best news I've heard today. Thank you so much. You don't know how much that means to us. Oh, well, I tell you what, it means a lot to to me, uh, um, Joe, it, 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 I think you told us in your first story about this phone call that this meant so much to both parents, of course. But her father had told her when she became a reservist that he expected, given her diligence, given her discipline uh, and all the other attributes that she had, that she would be promoted through the ranks. He had no doubt about that. So when the president told him that he was particularly moved, yes? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I didn't know that. It was only walking out uh, afterward when I was going to leave and he kind of walked me out into the yard and I just asked him just to make sure what was the emotion, why why were, I mean, clearly it's it's emotional anyway to, to have something like that happen. But he said, no, it wasn't that. It was that I had promised her she would make sergeant someday. And so, again, it was just kind of a, an extra uh, extra personal for the Sanderses uh, to have that happen because he had pushed her or at least reassured his daughter that, uh, you know, keep working at it. Even if you get turned down a couple of times, uh, the patience will pay off. And here that had come true. So it was you know, the president couldn't have known that. Uh, so it was again that, and that's when I knew that was the story, uh, that moment. Tell us a little bit more about that call with the president. Um, how did the president seem? We've seen him even during his last campaign. So much of what he did was consoling other families who had lost children. And, um, he said sometimes that weighs on him a lot, but he also feels like it's something important to do. Was that the tone of that phone call as well? Yeah, it, it almost, it, it sounded as if, uh, he was talking to, to someone he had known for a while. I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was just a special moment. Uh, that's all I can say that the, the mood in the room was, uh, it was certainly, uh, somber for sure. And, and I, I, I can't really <laughs> explain it any better. We're here with Joe Kovac. Uh, oh, sorry, Joe. No, you're good. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, we're here with Joe Kovac Jr., the AJC's new Macon bureau chief, who was in that room with, um, w- with the family um, as President Joe Biden talked about the loss of, of their loved one. And Joe, you know, something that we learned in Washington just this week was that um, his aides, President Biden's aides, printed up your story and made sure that the president himself saw that six-and-a-half-minute video that you you captured of that moment just to make sure, you know, it kind of hit home with him, and he said he was deeply moved by it. Yeah, I, that is that is tremendous that, uh, you know, stories that we do can can uh, make a difference uh, in, in, in matter and in, in ways that we maybe never see. I mean, I had asked... Uh, Sean Sanders, who was uh, now Sergeant uh, Sanders' father, um, what she had meant to her, to the to the world, what we had lost, what she meant to her town, and he said that he had actually been thinking about that uh, that morning, and he just said uh, when they memorialize her and they honor her, uh, I'm just reading from my notes here. He said it helps us to deal with it. Mm. Um, again, this was less than 48 hours uh, from when they had gotten the news at about, I think it was around noon on Sunday uh, when um, people from the service showed up at their house. Uh, so I doubt they had slept uh, very much. Um, he said he'd had a tough night the night before. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all of this is, is this outpouring of support is um it was incredible to see. 
Again, it, it was a privilege for us to be, have been there. Joe, I know we have to move on, but one other thing I'd just briefly like to mention, you followed up this important story with another one that people can read in the AJC. You have a letter that um, uh, Kennedy Sanders' uh, best friend, a woman named Emily Middleton, wrote about she wrote, Emily wrote the letter to uh, Sergeant Sanders and talked about how deeply she missed her, how the entire community had come together to mourn her loss. And it makes me emotional just to think about it. Yeah, that, that was kind of a, uh, the, the form for that. I had seen in Esquire magazine over the years. It's kind of a, uh, as told to. Uh, oh, type of piece. So oh, you wrote I, it on her with, behalf. Okay. Well, well, she she actually said the words, and she also had written part of that in a message to me, and because I was thinking of a way to make this the most personal uh, way to do the story, and we it was a collaborative effort, but it was also her words were in the quotes. It was more or less a a, a lightly edited transcription of our conversation and of her words. So it was. It was, uh, again, a collaborative effort, and uh, I had pieced together quotes from her in our conversation and also in some messages she had written me, and that was how that It's came a about. beautiful, beautiful tribute, Joe. Yeah, thank you so much. And again, it, it's, uh, it's maybe a little different than we tend to run on things, but it was, a, I, I thought, a, a neat touch, a perfect touch. Well, Joe, you did a tremendous job in telling the rest of the world um, about what uh, Kennedy Sanders family and friends knew about her and what they'll remember about her and what we all need to know about her. It's just one way to understand how deep these losses go for the families of these uh, soldiers who are deployed to areas around the world that some of us never even know about. So thank you so much for your work on this so far. And we will talk to you again very soon, Joe Kovac. Hey, thank you for having us, or me. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, guys, we're going to switch gears here because um, uh, as somber as that is, we also have a primary coming up, a presidential primary, the very first one for Democrats coming up in South Carolina. Greg, tomorrow. I mean, this thing is sort tomorrow. of caught, This sort of snuck up us in a little bit. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's the first it's the first true test for Joe Biden on the ballot because, of course, there was nearly no Iowa Democratic caucus and he was not officially on the ballot in New Hampshire, even though he still run, won the write-in vote in New Hampshire. And so this is the first time he's on the ballot in an election. And, of course, he's going to win the Democratic primary in South Carolina. But I think the real thing that we're watching, and I just talked to some activists even this morning that they're watching out in South Carolina, is the the level of support, of course, the turnout for Democrats, particularly in heavily— uh, black areas of rural South Carolina where, you know, a lot of folks are not really paying attention yet to, to, to democratic politics. And so this will be a time um, potentially for Joe Biden's campaign to flex its organizational mu- muscles and send a message that Democrats are energized behind his campaign. We'll find out how, how you know, just how high turnout is though. Is Dean Phillips on the ballot in South Carolina? Yeah, B- Dean Phillips and Mary Ann Williamson. In many ways, I think, Patricia, wouldn't you agree, this is something of an imperfect test for President Biden because there is no real contest to to energize Democrats to turn out. Plus, it's an open primary state. Democrats, if they choose to, can vote later in the month in the Republican primary. And if they're so inclined, can vote for Nikki Haley. The Democratic Party of South Carolina right now is sending out word Democratic voters don't, don't do, do it. Nikki Haley is as conservative as Donald Trump. <laughs> well, they may have a hard time getting that word out, too, yeah. especially moderate Democrats, because it reminds me of the 2022 Republican primary. Uh, fl- flip the script a little bit. But we heard from a number of Democrats who switched over to vote in the Republican mm-hmm. primary because they didn't want Herschel Walker to be the senator. They didn't want a number of other Republicans on the ballot. They wanted to keep Brad Raffensperger as secretary of state. 
kind of assuming that that's where their vote would be most needed, kind of quote unquote. And it made a huge difference for those candidates. Yeah. And and partly also, Patricia, because there was no real Democratic test, at least state, statewide, right? Yeah. Uh, Raphael Warnock and Stacey Abrams are both the statewide Democratic candidates for for governor and and U.S. Senate, and both them had either token support or no token opposition or no opposition at all. So a lot of Democrats said, "Hey, you know, this is where the game is at. It's at the Republican side of the ballot, and we have evidence that suggests tens of thousands of Democrats uh, ended up crossing over and voting." So coming back to South Carolina, it strikes me another reason the Democratic Party is trying to prevent uh, Democrats from going over and voting for. Haley, because of their animus towards Trump, uh, is they don't want to give Nikki Haley any momentum. They don't want, and she's not going to win the South Carolina primary, but they don't want her to get enough votes to keep moving forward. They want Donald Trump to be the nominee who faces uh, President Biden in the fall. Oh, uh, Democrats do not want to run against Nikki Haley. (laughs) This is a well-known fact of life for Democrats. They know that Ricky Haley, Ricky Haley, really? Nikki Haley is a much stronger, much stronger candidate um, than Donald Trump is because there there will be Republicans who definitely vote against Donald Trump. I don't know what Republican wouldn't vote for Nikki Haley when it's all said and done um, at the end of the day. But Greg, I have a question for you because you've already been in South Carolina once. Of course, you were covering the Republican primary, but did you do a vibe check on Democrats yeah, over there? What's is what is, what's it feel like over there for Democrats? Yeah, I did, and and I was mostly there to cover a, a few Mickey Nikki Haley events, uh, and I, I checked out the polling site across the street from one of the Nikki Haley events where there was no one there; <laughs> it just was just was empty. Um, and that is why this is a vibe check, right? As Bill said, it's an imperfect test, but it is the first time his name is on the ballot. And Democrats will be looking for, for, for through the tea leaves, right? They'll be looking for any sign. Um, again, you know, when I talked to a Democratic uh, operative there this morning, the word was he'll be, he'll be very closely watching rural Democratic turnout because he feels like in the suburbs and, and the, the main cities in South Carolina, the word is out more. He's more worried about, okay, rural, rural um, Democrats who aren't paying that much attention, who they want to mobilize now. Because as you said, sure. yeah. as far as President Biden's concerned, this race is already over. He wants to make it a one-on-one matchup against Donald Trump. You just go ahead and start, you know, crystallizing that field now. Yeah. And Bill, South Carolina is the state that Joe Biden wants to run in first, wanted to make a big splashy statement with how strong he is in South Carolina. But you've covered Biden for a long, long, <laughs> long time now. <laughs> and um, how do you think he's doing with his relationship with those Democratic voters? Well, you know, I think what's fascinating about it, you're right. I mean, I, I covered his first run for president, which started in 1987, and by the way, ended in three months uh, due to a scandal that today wouldn't would be even nothing. be a no. new, would be news nothing. story for more than a couple of hours. But, um, you know, of course, Biden's strength has always been what Joe talked about, really, and all of us in the phone call mm-hmm. to the uh, family. He has a common touch. You you may not like his politics. You may not want to vote for him for any office. But one of the things that's always been admirable about him, going all the way back to the 80s, was his ability to relate in a very human way to the people around him. And one of the problems, of course, that he faced in 2020 was that, as Republicans like to say, he ran a campaign out of the basement because of COVID. And so we didn't get to see as much of that. Now, at the same time, we we know that there are Democrats who are very worried that his age, that um, voters' concerns about the economy, even if the economy is improving, make him pretty vulnerable. Um, so it's going to be fascinating to watch how all of that plays out. But we are going to see the Joe Biden that I, over the years, saw out there talking to real people like Union auto workers is one example. Yes, I have heard from Democrats who want him to be both campaigning and do some gentle stretching, <laughs> like, <laughs> just to kind of be nice and nimble yeah. and really project, Greg, not so much youth, but at least vitality, strength, have a little pop on the stump. Do you think they're going to get that? Yes, right? yes, exactly. Yeah, look, that's what they're looking for. And I, I think we'll, we're going to start to see that. Or at least we're going to start to find out if he can, yes. you know, especially as he does more of these interactions. You know, the word I heard from Democrats about the conversation we just had where we heard some of that that compelling audio, you know, that really tragic audio. 
um, that that I don't think Joe Biden had any clue was being recorded. By the way, this was not done for the cameras. Yeah. Is they want to see more interactions like yeah. that? The more that he couldn't do in 2020 when there was a pandemic, when there was so li- limited interaction with actual voters. Yeah, and I do think that call is so instructive. If people have a chance to go watch the video. That is a President Biden who is fully engaged, hanging on every word, totally on that conversation and connecting with a fellow American, a fellow parent in a way that not many people, it doesn't matter if you're in politics or not, don't connect that way. You know, it's interesting. All of us have covered not just presidential candidates, but candidates for statewide office and the like. And and we get a look behind the scenes at just in a personal way, how likable they are, right? Um, Sometimes. Some are, some aren't. <laughs> Joe Biden is... How unlikable, some others are. <laughs> yeah, that's my point. Well, no, no. I mean, Joe yeah. Biden is an entirely likable human being. George W. Bush, again, whether you wanted to vote for him or support his politics, I covered him for four years. Incredibly likable uh, person. And that translates, I think, when you're out there campaigning. And it's it's the old test. Who would you want to have a beer with, right? Yes, exactly. Well, we'll see if anybody's doing some drinking out there. I don't even think Joe Biden drinks beer, but we'll see how he does. The bar tab is on us for any candidates. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, we're going to keep our eyes on the results of that South Carolina Democratic primary tomorrow. If you're in South Carolina or anywhere near there and you're registered to vote, it might be your day. Of course, the Republican primary in South Carolina is later this month on the 24th. And Georgia's presidential primary is next month on March 12th. When we come back, we're going to answer your questions from the Politically Georgia listener mailbag. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This podcast is part of the mission of the AJC to be the most essential and engaging source of news for people of Atlanta, Georgia, and the South. Stay up to date every day on breaking news, in-depth investigations, politics, sports, entertainment, food and dining, and so much more by becoming a subscriber to the AJC. Just go to AJC.com slash start for a special offer and unlock hundreds of original articles published daily at AJC.com and on the new AJC mobile app. Plus, you'll have access to our news, sports, alerts, subscriber-only events, AJC original shows, films and videos, newsletters, podcasts, and so much more. That's AJC.com slash start. Well, it's Friday, so you already know the focus is on you, our listeners, And we're going to start taking your questions right now from the listener hotline, which is available 24-7. Leave us a message and we'll answer them every Friday right here on the show during this segment. And our executive producer, Shane Beckler, has your calls queued up. Shane, what have you got for us in the mailbag this week? Well, let's start off with a call from Janet in Marietta. Uh, Janet called in with this question after hearing Rich McCormick on the program this week. Rich McCormick said existing border security legislation needs to be enforced. Can you get Rich McCormick to inform us about the provisions, bill number, and year of the existing legislation on border security that is not being enforced? Is this the same legislation that Trump (laughs) followed when he separated children from their parents? Janet, that is a terrific question. And I, I have to say, when we heard Representative McCormick say, Not only do I not like the law that Democrats are talking about with Republicans over on the Senate side, and by the way, we've seen no text of this bill, so we don't know exactly what Republicans are objecting to. He said, we need no more new laws on the border, on border control. Um, Guys, what was your reaction to that? Because we've seen a lot of executive orders come and go. So the laws pertaining to the border have changed slightly as COVID started, COVID ended. Um, But... This was a new line from Republicans that we need no new legislation to control 
the border. Yeah, but Georgia, this has been one of the narratives, one of the, the, the talking points for a faction of Republicans, not all Republicans, but a faction of congressional Republicans that say they don't want any sort of border deal, any sort of compromise um, with Democrats because they want the existing borders, border laws uh, uh, to, to be put in place, to, to be implemented. And we're seeing that being used right now in particular because it seemed like there was a border deal on the table until former President Donald Trump and some of his allies sent the message, don't pass anything that could help President Joe Biden out in a squeeze right now over immigration because we're seeing even more and more in polls, not just of Republicans, but of Democrats as well, who are raising sharp concerns about what's happening on the U.S. border with Mexico. You know, this notion, as Republicans have put forward, that that President Biden doesn't need additional tools in a congressional bill um, to enforce border regulations is really debatable. Um, you know, president, when, when he was president, Donald Trump faced courts who reversed some of the decisions he wanted to make in terms of shutting down the border and enforcing stricter border laws. And President Biden is in, in the same position. There are limits to what executive action can do established by the courts, established by previous congressional action. Um, and I think that's important to keep in mind here. Yeah. And uh, next week on the show, we're going to get into what is in that immigration bill. We do expect a vote in the Senate uh, on that border deal. And we'll get into all the weeds on exactly what's going on there. Also on Monday, Chuck Cook, who is one of the country's leading immigration immigration attorneys, will be here. And he always unpacks uh, border issues for us in a really powerful way. And one more thing to talk about Monday is Governor Kemp is going to the U.S. border with, yeah. with Mexico mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to stand alongside Texas Governor Greg Abbott on that issue. Yeah, Janet, you have really hit the issue of the <laughs> week. Does. So we look forward to bringing you um, some more information on that uh, later in the show or next week. Uh, what is our next Segment. I mean, what is our next uh, question from the mailbag? <laughs> you can turn a segment into this if you like. Uh, next up, th- this is a comment about ballot tampering. This is from Lewis in Douglas County. When the issue of paper ballots and possible tampering with QR code comes up, I'm always surprised no one mentions the auditing process. I've served on our county's ballot adjudication committee. And without going into a lot of detail, I really don't see anyone how anyone wanted to tamper with an election. Yeah, Lewis, that's a that's a good question. And uh, you're referring to something called a risk-limiting audit that happens as well in Georgia. And our last risk-limiting audit that we did on the 2020 election um, supported two machine counts and other counts that found that Joe Biden, of course, won that election by 12,000 votes. But that's an important part of the process that kind of is a back check on the other recounts that already are underway, Bill. Um, yeah, I mean, I do. I think we in, in, in on this show certainly, and you in your writing, both of you have certainly talked about the audits that have been conducted, especially the 2020 election. Shane, what is our next question from the mailbag? Okay, let's let's wrap it up here with Sally from Shambly. I like this call. The next time a politician pontificates about grocery prices, please ask them when the last time was that they pushed a grocery cart or how much a loaf of bread is. Thank you so much. Can I jump in on this real quick? Sally, President Biden, the White House has just announced that President Biden is going to begin pressuring a supermarket chain's executives to lower their prices, claiming that they are making excessive Profits. So whether grocery prices are spiraling out of control because of what happened during the pandemic or not, Biden recognizes what a significant problem this is. And it looks like at the very least, he's going to try to tell the public he's on their side. All right. Well, we love hearing from our listeners. So give us a call for next week's show. We're at 404-526-2527. We only have a few minutes left to talk about our who's ups and who's downs for the weeks. And here we go. All right. We always like to finish on an up note. So, Bill Nygut, who's your who's down for the week? Well, animal lovers, I'm sorry to say, but PETA is my down for the week on this Groundhog's Day. 
Um, it, they, they went to, they, they believe that Puxitani Phil should be set free. They don't like this poor groundhog being used as a weather predictor. They suggested that the people of Puxitani should do a coin toss to decide whether we're going to have six more weeks of winter or not. I get their concern about animals, but you know what? This is one of those examples of just going too far out of the out of line on this. <laughs> and they went after the Georgia Bulldogs. So uh, my, my loser is Fair Fight, and this is a serious one, of course, yes. but once a fundraising juggernaut, the political advocacy, advocacy group founded by Stacey Abrams uh, has fallen on hard financial times. After raising more than $100 million the first couple of years it was in existence, uh, this week, the group's leaders announced plans to lay off 20 staffers and scale back operations. And Patricia, as we talk about 2024, um, this is a this will be a major void for Democrats and their allies because you will have less organizers and activists and others who are rallying around Democratic candidates for this election. All right. Well, my who's down is Representative. Rich McCormick, you can do pull-ups in the Capitol Dome, but don't get caught. That's my only advice for you. Bill, who is your who's up for the week? Esther Panich. She fought for two years um, to get this uh, anti-Semitism definition into law. She started it as a freshman. She was just learning her way. And over the years now, she has really learned what it means to be a state rep who's got a bill you want to get passed. Patricia, my who's up for the week is Governor Kemp's frequent flyer program. He was in Davos, Switzerland a couple weeks ago. He's headed to the Texas border this weekend. And then he's going to go to Virginia next weekend for something called the MockCon at Washington Lee University, where he's going to participate in a panel with Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin and Donald Trump Jr. So that should be very interesting. Absolutely. Okay. Well, and, and his frequent flyer points are loving him. He'll probably get a few free flights out of this one, he I might, think. He might. He's, he's on his way. <laughs> My who's up for the week is Joe Kovac, our new Macon correspondent. Boy, he got thrown in at the deep end. His very first story for the AJC was a really tough one to report. He did such a beautiful job. And so I think that he is somebody we're thrilled to have on board. He is going to be one of our new correspondents. We've now added Macon. We've added Savannah. We're about to add Athens. And then look out for potentially... Columbus Columbus and Augusta. Augusta. So we've got a whole lot to look forward to um, at the AJC. Everybody continue to read us at theajc.com. Well, that's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. Or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again Monday for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean Breeze, Tropical Beach, Pina Colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. A celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.